From the offices of the Tribeca Film Institute in Lower Manhattan, this is TFI Live. I'm Jason Gracio, and welcome to our year-end episode. We're closing out 2014 like we did in 2013. We got some journalist friends in here. We're going to talk shop. We're going to talk some movies and TV and all types of fun things. And um, I'm happy to have uh, two of my friends here. I'm very excited to talk to them about this year in film and other things. Uh, next to me, he's the deputy editor and f- chief film critic at IndieWire. He also hosts the podcast Screen Talk with Ann Thompson, and he has the book out right now, Harmony Corinne Interviews. Hello, Eric Cohn. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank Thanks you for, for being me. here. And she is the film critic at BuzzFeed and also hosts a podcast. It's called Film Spotting SVU with Screen Crush's Matt Singer. Allison Wilmore is here. Hello, Allison. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. And last but not least, I don't want to leave him out. He also joins us for our final episode. He is the man behind the glass, Gavin Mevius. Gavin, hello hello again. Hi. So we're all podcast veterans here, as we've pointed out. So um, uh, I'm happy to have everybody here. Uh, Eric IndieWire put their um, critics poll out today. The big mother. Yes. So them all. So give us kind of the takeaways from that. What did you, you know, surprises? Was everything pretty much as you expected? Give us some insight. Well, there were some expected things and some unexpected things. I mean, there were 220 people who voted, which was uh, close to to half of the the number of people in our entire Critic Wire network. And we put a lot of time into making sure that as many people vote as possible. Uh, because with a lot of times with these things, it keeps getting away from people and just putting together a top 10 list is hard enough. And then doing all these other categories with best actor, best actor supporting and undistributed film is a really hard category for people. So we really push hard to get as much response as possible so that the results seem to reflect a broader sense of consensus and also a more sophisticated understanding of the different films that critics saw throughout the year. So there's a really interesting spectrum of of voices if you kind of like peruse the results from like, you know, the kind of stalwarts, as we called them, of the profession. People have been doing this for decades. Jim Hoberman, Amy Amy Talbin, or Jonathan Rosenbaum, to, you know, all kinds of different people who work in the online space, like Allison and and Dana Stevens at Slate, and also people who who work for, you know, smaller kinds of sites like Film School Rejects and things like that. And seeing, you know, that Boyhood won Best Film is obviously not surprising, or that that Richard Linkletter won Best Director. But then you have these other kind of categories, like Best Actor, where all of a sudden Ray Fiennes comes to the top. And not only that, he won by a lot um, with Jake Gyllenhaal coming in second and then Michael Keaton, who everybody's saying is kind of like this award season favorite and Birdman in, in the third place. And I thought that was really interesting. If you look at some of the categories where that sort of thing happens, it really shows you that the way that critics look at movies, especially during this time of the year, is fundamentally different from the kind of award season narrative, although they're related in certain ways and one can have an effect on the other uh marion cotillard winning best actress for two days one night as she just did for the new york film critic circle is another interesting example uh because you know everybody's saying that julianne morris is lock for best actress and more on our list was in the sixth place so wow. you know th- there it, it really is sort of contingent on you know what are the volume of movies that people are seeing and also what do they want to sort of pluck out of you know obscurity or you know things that aren't getting the same sort of you know attention as, as others to, to kind of bring back into the conversation and then you know this is the best undistributed film category which fewer people participate in because it's hard to figure out what actually qualifies uh but you know hong sang su 
who's this great Korean director who always makes these fun movies about people sitting around and drinking, uh, made a movie called Hill of Freedom that was at New York Film Festival and a couple other fall season festivals this year and is still without a home. So it's interesting to get movies like that into the conversation because I think it shows you that kind of the way that critics think about movies and talk about movies, no matter like what sort of the reasons are for like having a discussion about them at all, you know, ultimately it comes from whether or not people think these movies are any good. I mean, Boyhood just ends up being this great movie that a lot of people are happy to support. Um, and I think the the kind of enthusiasm for it is merited. But what's interesting is when you look beyond that kind of category to all the other stuff that's sort of trickling in, and there's a lot of stuff in every category, we publish the top 50, and there is always a top 50. Well, I mean, let, let's let's touch on Boyhood for a second, because it's something we've been talking about since Sundance. And, um, you know, I, I feel like part of it is, obviously, it's a great movie, but also, it's just one of those movies, too, that we in this community are going to get behind just because of the backstory, the director behind it. Um, but I mean, will this shift over to the Academy Awards? Allison, do you want to jump in on this? Like, do you feel this will grab voters? Do you feel like this is going to be the... Is it a shoe in for Best Picture, or are we just... I mean, I the feeling I get right now, and I, this definitely always changes as we get closer to the Oscars, is that it's between Birdman and Boyhood, uh, you know, for Best Picture. Really? That's Yeah, that's the feeling I get. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, it, it's such... Boyhood is such a critic's favorite for the reasons you mentioned, and for its kind of its formal daring and just the achievement of, of filming something over that amount of time. Uh, you know, Eric and I were on another panel and kind of, it, it, it is like, as we mentioned, the kind of the Avengers of, of, you know, for critics, it is the movie that everyone has been kind of waiting for and like building up for a long time before it ever premiered. So I think there is a way in which like the critical community has kind of always been behind it. I don't know how much it is resonating with Oscar voters. Mm -hmm. They're kind of a mystery to me. And I, you know, I think sometimes I, I, um, I I think they are more conservative than they necessarily end up being, but I don't know. We've got weeks and weeks of Oscar race, you know, and there are, there are plenty of ways in which that can change. But so, but you're saying it's kind of like two horse race. I do. Do you see Selma in that too? I don't know. Maybe I think, but you know, I think uh, in terms of like the awards that have been going up to it, it hasn't, you know, come across as like the major favorite mm-hmm. by any means. Mm-hmm. I, it's going to be an interesting year in that there's no clear front runner, you know, and these are all interesting and very different movies. I would be happy with seeing any of those three come out on top. I think that there are way worse things that could happen. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I mean, this is the time of year where I think you realize that the movies that dominate the critical conversation, you know, ones like Boyhood, uh, that there are these other movies like The Imitation Game and Theory of Everything that like voters are paying much more attention to that we don't really spend that much time talking about. You know, those are much more traditional biopics. They're anchored by these like very kind of showy performances that are very admirable, but, you know, maybe not that interesting as films by themselves. So, yeah. and then you have the fact that probably most of the public hasn't seen any of these or certainly hasn't seen any of them yet. Right. You know, not many of them have gotten wide releases or have gotten releases at all. So, I don't know. Sometimes I think it can be a little easy this time of year to get stuck in your particular bubble, whatever yeah. it may be, and to, it's good to kind of get out of that and like look at different films that people actually 
have seen and well, that's like, that's sort of what I felt when you mentioned Still Alice or Two Days One Night. Both those films are practically no one besides critics have seen them and while they do keep getting those raves it's hard for the public to sort of gauge you know these performances based off trailers if they've even seen those trailers yeah you know still alice has gotten i think a week-long run and it's not in theaters anymore it's gonna be it's gonna get its real release in january and i mean i've seen it you've seen it eric and people have seen it out of toronto but it is funny that you have this movie that's dominating the conversation but that there's been no audience for yet. And, uh, you know, just to touch on that, uh, it seems this Christmas, the Christmas Day releases, there's usually one or two big ones. But it seems like they've really overloaded the day with releases. Any kind of feeling on why why that is? Why why are we getting... The, well, The Gambler got moved. The Gambler was mid-December, and then, now it's Christmas. Um, uh Unbroken, Into the Woods, Annie, um, Annie. Like, let's not forget about Annie. American Sniper. I mean, what is it? Just are we going to see more of this? That 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 Christmas Day is going to be really flat? Because I feel like this hasn't happened in the past. There's always like a couple, but it seems like there's a whole a whole lot. Well, there's just too much stuff, and the studios don't always have their strategies in place. You know, until a certain point in time, I don't think that they're like intentionally going up against all these different movies. It's just like it's really hard sometimes for some of these things to figure out. You know, how do you plot them out when they're not? You're not even sure when they're going to finish them. I mean, Selma is really a really interesting situation because one, they didn't know they were going to have this done for a really long time. It was going to be like this sneak preview with like a half an hour at AFI Fest, and then they decided over the weekend when they finished the mixing they were going to do it, but they didn't want anyone to review it because they weren't sure it was. Really done because there weren't credits on it, oh, yeah. and then all the critics really liked it, so they did review it, and then they just started showing it all over the place without credits, and it's gotten all this momentum. And obviously, you know, with the Eric Garner situation, like suddenly it became this sort of lightning in a bottle of sorts. You know, this zeitgeisty movie, yeah. you know, and so you, you can see how these things are sort of unraveling in real time, and then you know this whole idea of like let's make it a Christmas release just kind of ends up being maybe short-sighted because this movie could have been out now mm-hmm. and people would be talking about it in a big way, you know. And I think Unbroken is a similar situation. I mean, the rumor mill said they had to hire some editor last minute to like recut it, and you know it's like Angelina Jolie is this very complicated sort of phenomenon to deal with, right? As we've so, gotten from the Sony emails, right? <laughs> totally different can of worms. <laughs> But I mean, it's, you know, it's just, I think what you're seeing is just like a lot of times the way that these movies are handled in the fall season ends up being too complicated for anyone to know what to do. And in fact, if if there is one clear lesson that you can extract from a word season so far, it's that it's actually better if you have a real gem of a movie to take it out of that conversation and start it earlier. Boyhood was a summer release. Grand Budapest Hotel, which is definitely sneaking back into the conversation, came out all the way back in March. Yeah, I think so. along with Boyhood, that's like the other critic darling. That's the one that no one's going to let up on. They're going to keep pushing and pushing because everybody just really was taken by that film. Yeah, and and Oscar voters also like Wes Anderson. I mean, he's been nominated. You know, it's just, I think with this movie, you also have the fact that it was very successful commercially, which makes a difference. A lot of people have seen it. So it was sort of like it, they began the conversation even before there was a conversation to be had. You know, and I think all of this stuff kind of feeds into this, you know, the, the, there are definitely two conversations one go, going on at the same time. Like one is, you know, something that's being crafted by the studio and the other is being crafted by a kind of like 
the public and the media sort of at the same time, you know, and the synthesis of that is like the overall sense of like where the, this race is headed, mm. you know, and my feeling is actually that Selma has definitely complicated the race, but it's, it's not quite strong enough of a movie to be like a serious best picture kind of a movie. I mean, it's, it's good, but it's, it doesn't feel quite like this sort of momentous kind of movie of a moment that could overtake what's going on, which is, as Allison said, Boyhood versus Birdman. All that being said, it does seem like because there's no clear front runner in a real definite sense, Boyhood has the edge. It's had more time to develop that narrative. And also, I think just overall, people respect it more, which I will say is really ironic to see all these like Hollywood types like really excited about a movie they would never in a million years make. Right. You know, it's, right, it's kind exactly. of fascinating. And I brought this up on, on our podcast before, but th- there was this Hollywood Reporter roundtable where they bring in different studio execs who are in the Oscar race. And you had like Kevin Sujihara from so- from Warner Brothers and somebody from uh, Fox and then like Jonathan Steering from IFC who's like completely <laughs> out of place. And if you go and look at this video, which is probably like an hour long, he barely says anything. <laughs> and so I think like the most interesting thing to me about this season is sort of the contrast between the, the boyhood factor and everything else. And I think also, I mean, I always kind of feel like Christmas, there's, there's usually that's when the studio is pumping their muscles and be like, this is going to be basically like our best picture. So have at it. But like you're saying, everything that's coming out either this week or next week isn't coming up to snuff with whatever Birdman or Boyhood or Grand Budapest was. I mean, I saw American Sniper this morning. I, did, did you, did you, have you seen American Sniper yet? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, that, that's a great example where Clint Eastwood is always, usually with his films, it's always like the last, you know, it's like right when it's like the voters have to see it, that's usually when he gets it out. And I mean, I, I don't personally don't think it's a very strong movie, but I mean, that's, that's a great example of something that's been like super hyped, but hasn't really i mean at least i don't know how, how did you feel about it or it's okay and it gets a little monotonous after a while i mean there's one conversation i guess to be had about how 84 year old clint eastwood can still make this pretty solid effective wartime drama there's some really compelling suspenseful sequences i think bradley cooper's really good yeah uh the story is definitely a bit of a downer and it's not uh, it doesn't reach any kind of major takeaway, I think, after the first hour or so. That was sort of my feeling of it. And, and I felt, too, yeah. like he needed more money for this movie, for his vision, I it felt. It is kind of scaled down. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just it just didn't have much of an impact on me, to be quite honest. Uh, but that being said, I mean, you know, with, like, the best picture race being 10 slots and all the weird math going on with That's that, true. and the fact that it is opening late in the year and people love Clint, you know, I mean, it's definitely in the conversation and Bradley Cooper, you know, he's been, I think, very well liked in the last couple of years for the different kinds of things he's done. I mean, I would rather nominate him for Rocket in Guardians of the Galaxy <laughs> than this performance. But I mean, he is strong in, in American Sniper, though. Yeah, though he's I, pretty good. Though I will say, for whoever has been reading the stuff on the internet about the the, the mechanical baby in the movie, it's. It's 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 so obvious. Like I I can't tell you anything that happened in those scenes because all I did was stare at that robot baby. Like it's it's it's, it's going to come down to the, to the robot baby and American Sniper versus Ben Affleck's genitalia <laughs> as like the weirdest on-screen appearance of the year. Well, they could sell that movie better if they named it Robot Baby. Robot Baby. Yeah, I actually Robot. had a question because I know Allison uh, is a fan of, of this film. So what happens with when a film a, a good film that's been around hasn't 
doesn't seem to have found that audience. And I'm specifically talking about Under the Skin, which is a really fantastic film. It's my favorite film of the year uh, so far. And, and I've seen one article really pushing for Scarlett Johansson as best actress. But I mean, that's an, another example of a really good film that opened much earlier in the year. And it's kind of creeping back into the conversation, but it's not finding the traction of something like Grand Budapest Hotel. Like, Yeah, I think it's that question of like, where is the line where something is just too art house for <laughs> the Oscar race? And I, I do feel, I love Under the Skin. It's my favorite film of the year. But I do think that it is just too weird mm-hmm. for, yeah. for a lot of, even if it's not necessarily weird for individuals, I think there's an assumption for like Oscar voters that it's just like, well, this is not a serious contender. And I don't know what kind of, why boyhood you know, is okay in that way. And then something like Under the Skin is not. When I feel like, you know, Boyhood is in its own way a challenging movie. It's it's a movie that kind of defies the usual beats of a kind of coming of age story. But, I, you know, with something like that, I honestly, it never occurred to me that Under the Skin could be like really talked about outside of kind of critics awards <laughs> and things like that, because it's just... It's such an odd, like wonderfully yeah. odd movie, and uh... that's a that's a great way to describe it. Wonderfully odd, but and, uh, I feel like that's what Jonathan Glazer's all, all of his films. He not only wants to challenge the audience, but he wants it to be so polarizing that that's the conversation right there. Yeah, absolutely. But you know that doesn't necessarily fit our idea of what an Oscar movie is. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, Allison, tell us some more of the films you like this year. I loved uh, Two Days, One Night. I saw it at Cannes, and it stuck with me ever since. And I think it's easy to kind of shrug off the Darden brothers because they just continue to make such phenomenal films that, like, after a while, you're like, oh, good. Another (laughs) incredibly well-made, moving parable of a working-class person struggling against an impassive system. Uh, But I I think that this one, beyond, like, being anchored by a fantastic performance by Marianne Cotillard, is just, like, like a, a great kind of fable of someone who has to learn to fight for herself and to be put in a system of a kind of unfairly pitted against her coworkers by a company as opposed to the company itself, which is really what's happening, right? It's about a woman who has to convince her coworkers to give up their bonus, their year on bonus in order for her to keep her job. Um, and that's like an artificial, uh, you know, exchange really it's there. It's up to them to figure out how to keep someone on salary. But um, I think that's, it's a great film. Um, Grand Budapest Hotel is another favorite of mine. Um, I liked Selma a lot. Um, I liked Guardians of the Galaxy, actually. That's on my list as well. I think that in terms of like pure enjoyment, uh, I it really delivered and it kind of managed to be a recreation or of the 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 space operas of the 80s, but also seem very modern and self-reflexive at the same time. Um yeah, those are definitely, those are some of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One thing that surprised me on the short list was Jodorowsky's Dune included in it. Do you think that has, you guys feel that has any chance of getting into the final nominees? I don't know. I, that that category is such a toss up. You know, I, I, I this year's um, list so far is really strong. I think like there aren't a lot of obvious terrible, um, you know, snubs that I could come up with. There obviously some just don't end up there. But right. I think it's like a really good selection this year. But I don't know when it comes to coming like the final five. Who knows? Right. Like who knows what what brings that around? Are you surprised that I was on the short list? 
No, not really. Not really? I mean, I think that... I mean, it's Sony Pictures Classics. They know how to play that game a little bit and screen it around, and it's a well-liked movie. But weird stuff shows up on there. I mean, Monica Mana could have been shortlisted. You know, that was, um, you know, submitted. I mean, then it was nominated for a, you know, Gotham Award. I mean, things sneak in there. The fact that Act of Killing was nominated last year I thought was pretty radical. You know, and I was hoping it would win just to see a movie that sort of experimental and, and challenging being a part of the conversation was really exciting but it does show you like all this stuff is like really up for chance until kind of the last minute when it does seem like there's a popular favorite like last year we kind of knew 20 feet from stardom was going to win best documentary because it just you know it was like the easiest kind of bet but right now, I think the shortlist is kind of interesting because I would say there's probably four movies that that seem to have like the strongest momentum. Uh, Citizen Four, you know, whatever, it's Life, Life itself, itself. Virunga, which mm-hmm. is a movie that I think documentary filmmakers aren't so hot about on, but it's a strong activist film with a serious like commitment. And then the fourth is Last Days in Vietnam, Rory Kennedy's movie, which has been screening around and gaining a lot of momentum, and she's really well liked in the doc community. So that leaves open a fifth slot. So who knows? I mean, anything could happen. The Overnighters yeah, is, yeah. I mean, the fact that that was shortly, that was pretty exciting. Uh, a lot of critics didn't really get behind the movie, that movie as much as I had hoped, and it didn't do that well. Uh, but Draft House Films did release Active Killing last year. So again, you know, anything is possible. Yeah, yeah. Gavin, do you want to give uh, well, I, some I of just, your... The, the only thing about uh, Jodorowsky's Dune is uh, I talked to a lot of critics recently because I, I i particularly really liked it and i'm actually surprised that um i'm getting the sense that it's not as well liked as many of the other documentaries have come out and i and it, i think that's an interesting thing because it is such it's a film almost made for critics i feel like or filmmakers and it's weird that the uh, it's not connecting with the audience that it's made for which may, almost makes me wonder who then is connecting with it hmm. yeah you know i think with like that and then life itself are the two like real like movies yeah. the documentaries that really speak to the film community specifically but i don't i think with Jodorowsky's dune it i mean the sense i get from people is when people push back on it it's that it pushes a little too hard in the being like this is so influential right and you're like well there's so much fascinating stuff here but i don't know that you've really made the case that this is a movie that like shaped so much of what was to come when it was never made to begin with, you know, it might have been had like a lot of kind of the incredible talent, I guess, behind yeah. it is right. And like the way that it kind of reflected yeah. what was to come. But I think yeah. it never really makes a great case for how all of those things filtered like, well, the, kind of shaped. Yeah, I'm still trying to connect the dots with that in Star Wars. That yeah. still right. like, the, doesn't make the, sense to the, me. The one that makes the most sense to me is Flash Gordon, though. I will say. Yes, it, no, but, absolutely. But, yeah, but, but it's uh, like they just had it there next to them when they wrote yeah. the script. Yeah. But the, the conversation I invariably end up having is someone will then tell me, they're like, well, it would have, like, regardless, it would have been an unmitigated disaster. And I was like, yeah, but it, it didn't happen. So you can't say if it was a disaster or not. And I was like, but plus, it'd be really entertaining to find out if it was a disaster. Like, And I'm like, that doesn't do anything for you but no so you know the the one film we haven't brought up and i'm kind of surprised is is whiplash what uh what in just regards of just the the oscar talk i mean do you you guys feel that is a best picture again you like well like that, you pointed so out that's JK 10 Simmons titles got but, the supporting actor for the for the indie wire yeah then, so yeah so i mean is is he basically the shoe in do you do you guys feel i would say so i mean actor? i think he's he's great he's really he's, amazing, he's yeah. due you know yes. <laughs> uh and I think that if that film is going to win an award, maybe 
aside from like editing or something like that, that that's going to be the one. I, I'm sure it'll be one of the nominees, the Best Picture nominees. I don't think it really is, stands a chance of winning, but mm. I mean, it's so it's got two great performances, and I think in particular J.K. Simmons is just phenomenal, and it's such a good fit for him, you know, uh, and. Yeah, I think uh, I would not be unhappy if mm-hmm. you won. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, not much to add to that, but I would say, you know, again, it's Sony Pictures Classics, and every time this comes up on, on award season conversations, all the other distributors are like, gosh, do they pay you something to do this? And right. it's like, well, no, they just play this game really well. I mean, it was still Alice. You know, they basically picked that movie up when it was clear that, you know, it was a, a quote-unquote weak year for for, for act, Best Actress, and, and they could make the case for Julianne Moore. Uh, with this one, you know, it came out of Sundance. I think the the best picture slot is one that it's kind of similar to when Beast of the Southern Wild, which also was a Sundance acclaimed hit, uh, wound up getting in that category. Although I think that was a, a little crazier because that movie was so weird, yeah, yeah. you know, by commercial standards. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a great discovery and stuff. And, and Damon Chazelle is kind of like rising star. He could even get a best director nomination. But but Simmons is basically a lock. I rewatched that movie last night on the award screener I got, and I'm just amazed at how much... I mean, he's not even, like, supporting. I mean, he is that movie. And his face... I've never seen J.K. Simmons act that intensely before. It's not just, like, it's his time. It's his best performance. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I I remember seeing it at Sundance. It's it's funny, because you you see a second viewing of that. At Sundance, you're just blown away by everything that's coming at you. Seeing it a second time, I completely flipped on what my feeling was of his character seeing it the second time than seeing it the first time. But I I felt that the first time I just felt like he is just a madman and that's it. It's just like he is just a hard ass son of a bitch. Then the second time, like he has a method to his madness, you know, that he it it is just a strange way of pushing someone to greatness. And it's it's like you said, it's it's like the best performance he's he's done and out of a career that's had really great notes. Uh, let's switch gears. Let's talk some TV. Gavin, you want to start us off? Oh, give us, me, to, yeah, me I'm going to throw it on you. Oh, was, good, give, good. Uh, give us some of your likes, dislikes. Well, it's it's such a it's such a weird TV is under this weird uh, metamorphosis, and sort of talked about it last year. Uh, streaming is sort of upping the game, and then this year even more so. You had second seasons of of the the big shows from last year, uh, House of Cards and Orange Is the New Black, and those things did incredibly well again. And then you had Amazon really stepping into the game this year, transparent. They have their new Mozart in the jungle, which no one knows how that's going to do, but there's an insane amount of talent behind that. Um, And, and networks are, I feel like networks are judging their shows harder. The biggest, the one of the biggest examples of that I can see is uh, Tina Fey. newest show was canned by NBC essentially and, and Netflix sort of swooped in and instantly gave it a two season and I think that uh, March, I'm excited to see that Joe. yeah uh, starring Ellie Kemper you know recently escaped from an, from a cult I mean it's it sounded like a, a niche sort of show to begin with for a comedy but it's it's kind of weird to watch these streaming services swoop in and 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 save these shows that networks are perhaps a little little scared of or, or or don't think will be as successful because they don't think they'll find the larger audience. It's almost as if networks still crave this, we need this large audiences and streaming services are like, you will find, you, it will find the large audience, but you have to give it a shot. Um, I would say, you know, there's that. And then the other big one, and this is still confuses me, is uh, communities turn to Yahoo. And I have no idea when that's starting. I think right. they've already shot, but... Uh, 
that's going to be an interesting thing. So uh, I don't know. It's kind of funny to watch networks run uh, from these projects that uh, that streaming services are sort of picking up. And and actually, to me, the most interesting thing that any network did this year was um, AMC saved their show Halt and Catch Fire, which was one of the lowest rated shows of the the year, I would say. And I, I particularly like it. I'm in I'm in the minority, uh, but their process their thought process was we want to give the show a shot to find an audience and to see all these other networks turn their back on these things it's interesting to see that tactic well i was going to say also amc needs another yeah. season of it oh, they true. you know yeah. they're in a, not a great spot right now I, I i what's interesting about amc in particular is that all of the shows that made them like the number one groundbreaking cable network for a while, Mad Men is coming to an end. We've got eight episodes left. Breaking Bad is done, you know, and uh, The Walking Dead is still a very dominant show, right. but it's not, I mean, I feel like it's not the kind of show as successful as it is. It's not the kind of show that people raved, rave about in the way that people did over Breaking Bad and it, Mad Men. It's fun to watch them scramble because I've been saying that for about a year now, actually, that, that you know, they're losing Mad Men. And so they created, if you watch Halt and Catch Fire, Halt and Catch Fire is a, a, a deconstruction of Mad Men and moved to the 80s. And it's kind of interesting to watch that, I will say. Like, it, like that's sort of what's working for me about it. Breaking Bad's done, so they have their prequel. Better which, Call Saul. Better Call Saul. And Walking Dead is getting a spinoff. It's almost like they are—they're trying to. Hey, when it's broke, clone. don't fix it. Just, yeah, exactly. You know, they're just retweet. cloning their own material, which is a really bad plan, I think, but it might work. Yeah, I don't know. It—it it seems you know we've. I feel like it's very easy to talk about the golden age of television, the quality drama, and all of that. But I do feel like we're at a turning point for that. That like we're at the end of that kind of this this particular era of the quality drama and that we're still seeing a lot of great TV. It doesn't fit into that category, you know? Right. So things like Transparent or Orange is the New Black or Broad City yeah. are, you know, Broad these City's shows great. that I think have such a different sensibility and that they represent ambitious television now or high maintenance, which is a show that's not even on television, which I think is like one of my favorite shows of the year, you know, and is, it doesn't, you know, fall into those categories at all. And to see, I mean, I liked the leftovers, but like that was HBO's big attempt to launch, you know, a fall drama. And I don't think that it really stuck, you know, they renewed it, but it didn't have the kind of impact that that kind of show right. would be expected to have. Just well, a few and years the scary ago. thing too, is the news came, came coming out that they're essentially retooling almost the entire, that they're getting rid of like every side character and replacing them like that's a scary thing that says that HBO might not have the confidence that they the kind of swagger that it seemed to have when when leftovers didn't hit. That's right fascinating away. because the side characters were when the story was focused on them were were the best episodes. Absolutely. Well, you know, I think that there's a reason that we're seeing the kind of anthology, the season-long anthology kind of come into its own with Fargo, with American Horror Story which continues and with True Detective is that I don't know that a lot of shows have been able to successfully sustain the quality drama premise, you know, in a way that has marked like the great ones like Sopranos or like Mad Men. We've really well, needed to kind of. I don't know about you guys, but I'm I'm very scared of the next season of True Detective. I just I don't know how that's going to pan out at all. But it doesn't really matter because it'll be over and then they'll like have a totally new cast. Yeah, you know, I, yeah so I guess. Yeah. Just get the reboot. That's, sort, really that's sort of model. the. the f fun brilliant thing about the anthology um i i personally am not 
I watch every season. And I have no idea why I do it to myself because I hate American Horror Story. <laughs> I don't. It's like literally the worst thing that I watch besides. And then the other thing that I think is surprising and, and it's the brilliant last gasp of a, of a network in desperate need of a hit. How to Get Away with Murder, which is a show I cannot look away from. And I have this theory <laughs> about I know it's ridiculous. No, I, I have this. It's a good way to put it, though. Uh, no, no. It, it, I have this theory about um, they're sort of construct, constructing the hyper soap, which is when I was a kid, my mom would always watch these shows like Dynasty or even something like Melrose Place where something shocking would happen, but you'd have to wait till the end of the episode. And you no longer even have to wait seven minutes before you're left with a cliffhanger. Every seven minutes, <laughs> something happens. And you go to a commercial break, and it's insane. The pace of that show, I've never seen anything like it on television, but it's soap to the max, mm-hmm. to the extreme. Well, it's also, it just has something to do with the way that people need that kind of yeah. reaffirmation of what they're paying attention to every couple yeah, of minutes I, it's now. it's the, yeah. the sort of uh, lack of attention span, yeah. and it just feeds right into it. Well, and also, I mean, those are the shows that have brought people back to live viewing, right? Like, people love the Shondaland shows. People watch them live and are on Twitter, and the cast is on Twitter, and the creators are on Twitter. And I, you know, not that long ago, we were writing off live linear television as dead. And we're like, oh, DVRs and everything. And, you know, I think that those types of shows, and Game of Thrones, you know, and The Walking Dead, shows that have, are filled with, like, kind of juicy plot twists and like major character deaths and like uh these huge reversals uh i mean that's partially a response right it's to get people back to make it so urgent that you have to be there and watching it live otherwise it's gonna be spoiled and that's and that's something that really works for someone like cw whose major show two well three major shows are two superhero dramas the flash and arrow which are uh, highly connected even even for the episodes in which they're not crossing over you still feel the connection or vampire diaries which is not a show i watch but is a huge hit for them and right. and like constantly casts on twitter people live tweeting i missed this past week's episode of arrow when it aired and within half an hour of it ending i had the entire thing spoiled for me because i was on the internet <laughs> that right. was you know well and also jane the virgin which is their yeah. new show which is like a kind of meta telenovela mm-hmm. adaptation yeah. you know it is both about telenovelas <laughs> and also aping the structure of a telenovela and with a lot of kind of gasp reveals so i mean i think there's certainly something to that as like coming into its own as the new format for television again and I think the other side of the coin too is that there's the hate watching involved, yeah. and of course, American we cannot go. <laughs> we cannot go without talking about the newsroom. But uh, I mean, there there is that kind of destination. <laughs> Eric's like, no, no, Eric just that. gave up the mic. <laughs> <laughs> but there is that kind of destination feeling. You're like, okay, well, I'm going to get on Twitter Sunday night because I just want to. I want to absorb the hate. Yeah, I, you know, I think it's not something I always do, but I feel like, <laughs> I, I mean, even when I, I gave up, I will be honest, I gave up on this season of the newsroom, but I still was reading all of the hate tweets, especially, I mean, the this, I mean, it, it just ended, but the second to last episode had the really unfortunate timing of being about campus rape, right. Um, right. and that I think just brought all of this righteous ire, you know, and that um, Aaron Sorkin didn't necessarily handle very well um but you know no one kind of provokes people quite the same way so you you didn't make it for the acoustic um hoedown at post funeral at the I last did episode not. i did it was quite not. a sight it was quite a sight my uh, my other favorite thing and i i love watching um 
British dramas or uh, come over here for the first time. Uh, we finally just got Black Mirror through Netflix, and I'm watching it explode. And actually, it's really funny. I I saw Black Mirror. I think the last season aired about a year and a half ago, and it was fun to watch. Um, it changed from when it first hit Netflix, and everybody's like, oh, "Great, watch Black Mirror." To suddenly watch everybody be like, "Oh, Black Mirror!" Like whatever. Like it was so quick. It was literally two weeks. I watched people just turn against Black Mirror. But the but the other things, you know, um, we're getting a, a remake of Utopia soon with David Fincher and uh, I, her name Gillian Flynn. Yeah, uh, who wrote Gone Girl, uh, and that's a really brilliant British show. And it's be interesting to see what they do with it. But at the same time, I'm almost like, why? Because the show is brilliant on its own. Why don't we just Put that in America, and the the other big British show I really like that's airing right now is a show called Babylon, um, which the pilot was done by Danny Boyle, hmm. and then about half a year later they finally did the show, and it sh- stars Britt Marling, which is another interesting choice, and and that show is really interesting. And it, and speaking of couldn't come at a worse time, it's about the police and public relations, and within one of the first three episodes, the an unarmed black teenager is shot. I mean, huh. it's insane That's to watch this stuff sort of permeate while it hits the media, you know? Yeah, and just the unfortunate timing of that. But I mean, uh, that show is coming out in the U.S. on Sundance, yes. Sundance Channel. Um, I, I I don't know. I always like seeing, you know, we talk about the mid-level, the mid-budget movie going away. I think that's like a conversation I feel like I've had for the past two years. Yeah, yeah. And TV, and TV kind of filling in. But I mean, I've, I have enjoyed all of this TV that filmmakers have been making. You know, yeah. I've seen the first four episodes of the Duplass Brothers new HBO show, Togetherness. And I think it just feels so much like a product of their sensibility, you know? And I feel like there's something great about filmmakers being able to bring over their particular sensibility to a new medium without really changing it, just using a kind of serialized or episodic uh, style. I mean, to go back to the what we were talking about with the awards season stuff, there's actually a link here, which is that TV is, is a certain kind of convenient environment for one way of using the moving image, which is to tell a story. Binge view- viewing, essentially, is immersing yourself in a story. And I think we're seeing that TV has become the ideal platform for that. And cinema or movies, whatever you want to call that other thing, it's definitely something else. And the idea of Boyhood versus Birdman, I think, speaks to that, which is, you know, this, like, big screen spectacle with, the you know, the kind of scale that Birdman is made on. And Boyhood, which is could not be done as a TV show. Right. I mean, sure, you could conceive of a 12-year show, but it would be kind of like boring seasons <laughs> if you were to take out each year in that movie and make it a whole season. So I think that, you know, there's a bigger divide there. And, of course, it totally makes sense for filmmakers to migrate to the TV space where they're going to probably get more audiences, a better return, there's more money, you know, and so it's it's all very practical in that sense. I just want to say, though, on the, the topic of the kind of the timing of, uh, you know, things in the air and, and the way that these shows like Babylon seem to be addressing what's been going on with, you know, questions of police brutality and, and racism and so forth. My I, I did see Babylon, and um, I've seen Selma and, and some of the other things we've been talking about, but the one that I think addresses this the best, in my estimation, is the most recent episode of South Park. <laughs> did anybody? Which see I actually it? have DVR'd. I have to actually watch that tonight. So it it deals with a lot of stuff, including the live TV phenomenon, which it does spectacularly well. 
and they work in a Cosby reference. I mean, that show just never ceases to amaze me how well they can inject this immediate topicality to new episodes. It's one of the best they've done in a while because it folds in all these different things. But the way it deals with this racist police force is basically... They keep they keep having these run-ins with black characters in the episode, and one officer goes to tell the rest of the force about you know something this this black guy did, and they keep thinking that he's trying to tell a joke. So this one black guy just went into the room, and they're like, "Oh, go on! I think I've heard this one before." But go on. And the way that they use that device over and over again, and it's hilarious, but also you know making this really succinct point, I thought it was so great. But again, this is such a TV sort of a thing. You know, I was just sort of like, this is something that can only exist in the format that I'm watching right now. And I think like if there's some like master narrative to what we're talking about overall this year, it really is about how we're defining TV and movies as these two separate things better than ever before. And that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Well, guys, give give me a film that this year that you felt, or I guess TV too, if we wanted to go down that road too, that didn't get the attention that you were hoping for give me kind of a uh i'm putting everybody on the spot give me a kind of a hidden gem that people need to know about but yeah i got i got one for you um because it's it's out i think on vimeo now it's alexander rockwell who did in the soup he's a great sort of american indie uh voice he's got this movie called little feet that's totally charming it's just a touch over an hour it was the first movie that i saw this year because it played in the museum of movie images uh first look series in january and i thought it was just it was totally charming it's kind of like this peanuts ish tale in in black and white about these kids who go on this day-long adventure uh but it but somehow there's like a, a sense of of danger to their adventure because you're kind of in their world i mean sort of like it's shot from their perspective and it's it's just so well done i mean it was just it was so much fun and to see it you know clearly made on on a bare bones budget and yet not you know trying to work around that and in some ways using it to to the advantage of the story it was telling was really great um and you know i think it it's not a movie that anybody's really talking about. It's not a lot of people saw it, and it's not the kind of movie that would generate that kind of talk. But it, it, it is ironically more available than a lot of other movies right now, and so I hope people do check it out because it's it's great, and it's not that long, so it's perfect for home viewing. Um, you know, and then you can change the channel and watch uh, How to Get Away with Murder <laughs> for seven minutes or whatever. Allison, how about you? Um, I think that... It's not a small movie, but I, I think it did kind of get, unfortunately, lost in the shuffle. Uh, Beyond the Lights, mm-hmm, the Gina, sure. Gina Prince sure. Rutherwood's uh, film about a pop star, a kind of Rihanna-ish pop star who is uh, basically attempts suicide and then falls in love with the guy who rescues her. But you know, I think it's this. It's both very contemporary, like it has this very like dead-on view of. Um, the modern pop and hip hop scene. And there's a music video, right? Like at the, basically after the introduction, that is just like a perfect, like super kind of like uncomfortably sultry music video. Uh, But it's also just this very old fashioned melodrama. It is about this character who feels completely lost in this constructed identity and who has no particular I don't like no particular person to like kind of turn to to like model to turn to uh and you know Gugu Mbatha-Ra is the uh it's like her second kind of great role of the year but as as a main character 
is also biracial and she her mom who's played by Minnie Driver is white and who's like her momager and there's a real you know sense of how lost she is kind of both in her identity as a performer and her identity racially uh, and I, you know I think that it it weaves all of these elements into a kind of like dreamy romance involving like walks on the beach and like um like sexy airplane rides and things like that and i i I really feel like it is one of those unfortunate films where it's i think really good at what it tries to do but because it doesn't really fit into a box of like indie or the you know kind of the right kind of big uh particularly given that it has you know lead two leads of color Mm -hmm. that um no one has kind of known how to market it and that it's unfortunately just kind of sank out there. And, you know, Gina Prince, by the way, made Love and Basketball, which is yep. a, a big favorite of people. And then had a lot of trouble making movies, you know, it was it I feel a like while that, to make that, that, that movie too, Love and Basketball, is another one that, like, Beyond Lights, um, which I, I think is something that people will catch DVR. And exactly. That's the same with Love and Basketball. I think people jumped on that once it was it on cable. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. And that, like, people discovered it yeah. and that it became, I think, yeah, like a, a kind of cult favorite for a lot of people. And I, I think that, that this, that'll this happen with this as well. But I think it's a shame that yeah. it got put in, like, I think a thousand screens. It got, like, a fairly wide release, but then wasn't marketed that much. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there are a lot of people who would have been very hungry to see it who didn't even know it was there. So worth seeking out if it's still in the theater cool uh i have one that's it's uh i really like the guest and uh, i know it's a film that didn't stay out for very long and but it it just personally connected with me on on a certain level like it's the sort of movie that i would have like watched on a saturday afternoon like channel 11 movie returns with the guest you know sort of with my dad and but it's this great like 80s throwback action horror film uh dan stevens playing an american beautifully nonetheless like his accent was flawless uh returns to to this family comes to this family and tells them he was friends with their son who was killed in the war and he's there to sort of protect them and things sort of spiral out of control has this great synth score really heavy on like the colors too it has a very um i've heard some people describe it i know it's insane but i've heard some people describe it as uh terminator meets halloween I loved every second yeah, of it. That's I, how they I, describe it. Yeah, <laughs> the filmmakers describe it that way. The um and uh, yeah, I I love. I just really loved it. I had a lot of fun with that movie. I was completely shocked. I went in blind. It's another movie that's sort of like medium. Like it's not, it's not really independent, and it's not super, you know, high budget or anything. But it, it works for that movie. But I, I saw that at Sundance, and I went to Adam Wingard, and I said, "That's basically." your tryout for a studio movie. Yeah. And he looked at me and was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah he was like, uh-huh. But I, it's, it's well done. Yeah, it's, it's really well, well done. done. I, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I feel like no nobody else connected to it quite the way I did. But like, I just instantly like warm familial feelings, which is not what they were going for. <laughs> but yeah, that's that was for, work for me. For, for me, it would be a more recent film and it's uh, Zero Motivation, which I just thought was so well written and it's it's kind of like this mash you know kind of i guess you have to say private ben- benjamin but i would say more like catch 22 i mean the characters written um uh it's, it's all mostly female cast um you know israeli girls you know having to go through their kind of 
dedicated time doing military service, but basically just doing menial like office work. And um, just the characters are just so rich. And I think it's still at film forum. I could be wrong, but regardless, it's going to show up on like, you know, you know, DVR, I'm sorry, like um, video on demand or something soon. But uh, I just thought it was real well done. It won the grand jury prize at Tribeca film festival this year at that when I would highly recommend to go seek out i really like that movie's structure too i liked how yes. it was sort of separated into different chapters, chapters and, yeah yeah it was yeah. good it's very good yeah um so let's let's close out here guys with some talk of early 2015 we will be in the just awful time for movies for the <laughs> most part but there's sundance so uh you know i'm gonna put everybody you guys alice and eric on the spot but you know, what What just through the announcements that have been made for the Sundance titles that just have grabbed you so far? Uh, it, it was, I only looked over them very quickly because I feel like until I get out of this time of year, yes. it's really hard to think ahead to Sundance. But uh, I mean, the thing I'm most looking forward to is Don Hertzfeld's new short film, which I think is his first digital short film as well. And I just, he's one of my favorites. Yeah, and he's so I, good. Yeah, I, you know, like the, it's such a beautiful day, which is like the, feature that they that he made out of his three last shorts i think just was kind of genius it's like a stick figure tree of life uh and <laughs> you know he's only getting better so i'm really excited to see how this one goes real quick sidebar did you catch his simpsons couch gag of course yeah. oh yes the dark future simpsons yeah. in which everyone's reduced to a catch bleeding a catch for craze. i yeah. could not believe how like i was just like i'm i love them for letting him do this like i know who said yes to this yes yeah. exactly who signed off on it so good that was definitely like the best thing I've seen on The Simpsons in like <laughs> a decade or something. Absolutely. Like that that would sound like an exaggeration with anything else, but not The Simpsons. Not yeah. the Although Simpsons. Bill Bill Plimpton, another indie animator, did an intro not too long ago. He's so few. he's done a few. Yeah. So, you know, it's a it's a good spot for that and the timing is good. I'm definitely excited about that Don Hertzfeld short as I'm always excited for a new Don Hertzfeld. And uh it's such a beautiful day is on Netflix now, so people could check it out. The whole kind of like saga. It's really amazing, and he's like overdue to be discovered by a bigger audience. So I, re- I just remember finding him in high school with Rejected, and it still surprises me that like he's not more well known than he is. Because I still I reference. There's not like three days that go by that I don't find a way to throw in like even <laughs> just some reference to Rejected. <laughs> Formed me in such a weird way. Yeah, I mean, uh, there, there's always going to be, you know, stuff like that to be that's sort of like we're eager to go for because like it's sort of proven to be, you know, good stuff. I mean, like a Don Hertzfeld short at Sundance, like you can't go wrong. Yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and Sundance for me is always this interesting kind of balancing act where you you kind of put that stuff on your list first, and then you kind of start digging below the surface for these other things. And um, so far, I would say it's like it's way too early to really like throw that dart at the at the target, you know, but there's definitely going to be one. I mean, it's just the way that that festival is programmed, like there's some great movies and some bad movies, but there's definitely gonna be like something really interesting that those of us who are really looking beyond kind of the, the name quantities, I think we're going to find something. You know, last year for me, it was A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night year before that it was escape from tomorrow mm-hmm. you know and these aren't movies that are necessarily going to win over every audience member but i think they're going to get people talking and so that's what i'm really excited about you know all that being said i think uh, i think it's called the nightmare rodney asher's new film yeah. 
It looks really great. It's in the midnight section. He's the guy who did Room 237. And this one has to do with uh, sleepwalking and sounds really creepy and different. And so that, that should be cool. Um, and I, I was one of the people in the pro uh, category for uh, Rick Alverson's A Comedy at Sundance a few years ago, which uh, I will never forget sitting in the, the big Echo Theater and watching so many people walk out. And then it's <laughs> kind of found its crowd at the end. And he's got a new movie, probably more appropriately programmed in the next section called entertainment that I'm really looking forward to seeing. So my hope is that some of the weirder stuff that will divide people or, or more specifically play to a very certain kinds of sensibilities uh, is where the strength of the program will be, you know, but again, I mean, it's Sundance is really late this year. It starts yeah. in late January yeah. and ends February 1st. So we're going to have a lot of time in the new, new year, relatively speaking, to dig through stuff. And every day I think, you know, the, the tenor of the conversation will change and then we'll just see all these movies and we'll be in a totally different place. So. Well, no Sundance for me this year. I got baby number two on the way, so you guys enjoy yourselves. You'll uh, read about it. Oh, I, I, yes, I will. I'll, I'll be up late at night, you know, and uh, looking through your guys' Twitter feeds. And, and then those like, movies will come out, and right. you know, exactly. living in New York and being in the film community, you get to see what you want to see. Absolutely, so. and it'll be like September when they come out, so it's fine. It's <laughs> exactly. Fine. Um, well, guys, thanks so much for coming in to talk to us um, as we close out the year. Gavin, as always, thanks for podcasting with me for a year. Thank I appreciate you so much. it. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Happy holidays, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Now's a perfect time to become a TFI member and enjoy our events year-round. Go to our membership page on our website and type in the promo code TFILive10 and you will get 10% off the membership price. That's TFILIVE10, all capital letters. Go to our blog for more news about TFI and the independent film world. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast at iTunes and Stitcher Radio. TFI Live Music is by Mr. Simmons. Learn more about him at mrsimmonsmusic.com. The man behind the glass is Gavin Mevius. This is Jason Garacio. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.